Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Do you love to read but struggle to see print? Bookshare is a nonprofit ebook library that makes reading easier for people with low vision or blindness. Members can read in ways that work for them with ebooks in audio, large print, and digital braille. Get unlimited access to over 1 million titles, including New York Times bestsellers, periodicals, upskilling books, and more. Bookshare is free for New York Public Library patrons or U.S. students with a qualifying disability. For more information, visit Bookshare.org today. We are Friends in Art. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. We sing, compose songs and poems, play musical instruments, read and write books, paint pictures, and take photographs. We are playwrights, potters, sculptors, weavers, and storytellers. We are members of the audience and patrons of art museums. We celebrate beauty in all that surrounds us. We are Friends in Art. Join us in the art parlor for stimulating interviews, thoughtful conversations, and the latest art-related information beginning each Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind. I'm Brian McKellen. The American Foundation for the Blind, or AFB, just released its workplace technology study. The new study examines how workplace technology influences the experiences of blind, visually impaired, and deafblind workers. Joining us to talk about the workplace study are Stephanie Enyart and Ariel Silverman. Stephanie is the American Foundation for the Blind's Chief Public Policy and Research Officer, and Ariel is the American Foundation for the Blind's Research Specialist. Welcome to the show, Stephanie and Ariel. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having us. Glad you're yeah, both thanks here. so much. Yes. Tell us more about yourselves and the American Foundation for the Blind. Well, AFB is an organization that has been in the blindness space for many years. We've been celebrating our 100th year of uh, this year. Um, and um, you're speaking to two people that are part of our Public Policy and Research Institute, um, I'm in a role where I, I manage both the policy and the research teams, and Ariel is one of our researchers. And um, so within our fold, we're really focused on looking at evidence-based public policy advocacy, where we can research aspects of our focus areas, which include education, employment, aging, um, with some cross-cutting um, issues of technology and transportation and looking at how those issues are affecting people who are blind and who have low vision in the United States, and then trying to really kind of root our advocacy work um, within the research that we've done and that others have done um, in hopes of being able to make a greater impact for people who are blind and who have low vision in the United States. Wow, AFB is 100 years old this year? Yes, we are. We've done a lot of things in that 100 years. So that's why I say you're talking to this, this team within AFB, but we have done so much more than, um, than just our public policy and research functions. Um, oh my goodness. Happy birthday, AFB. <laughs> <laughs> so AFB advocates for the blind and visually impaired. 
where they're guiding the creation of more accessible websites, products, and businesses, making sure that the blind kids have all got their textbooks they need to succeed in school and help those older, older adults who are losing their vision in getting the services they need to stay independent. Stephanie, how does the new workplace technology study examine how technology in the office influences the experience of blind, visually impaired, and deafblind workers? Well, you know, there there is a set of government-issued guidance related to how things should work in terms of uh, reasonable accommodations. But there, there really is not, and, and there's also training and technical assistance information that helps employers understand what they should do in accommodating people who have all kinds of disabilities, including blindness. Um, but there are not a lot of sources that look at how that accommodation process is really functioning. And also, what are the experiences, the lived experiences of people who are blind and who have low vision? Um, are these practices and this guidance, is this, is, is this really working well? Um, or are there, um, is there evidence that there could be maybe a better way or something else that we should look at? And so this study really looks at the experiences of blind and low vision individuals, um, who are working and who are using assistive technology as part of their accommodations in the United States. And it helps to try to unpack some of that. Well, let's look at the report with a magnifying glass. Arielle, what survey data did the report summarize? So in the report, we summarized survey data from 323 participants who all self-identified as being blind or having low vision. And all of them reported that they are currently employed, either traditionally employed or self-employed or a combination of the two. So we report on survey data from those surveys, and then we also report on summaries of in-depth interviews that we conducted with 25 of those individuals representing a variety of different industries and types of employment. Now, the report summarized that um, despite the non-discrimination guidance and laws out there, there are still a lot of technology barriers that exist for the visually impaired who go to work. Stephanie, before we get more details into that study, do you think the report is going to help fill those gaps and just create even more fully inclusive workplaces in the months and years ahead? I mean, yes, that's the intention in really embarking on this kind of work. Um, you know, we're we're hoping that those that are well positioned to be able to take in information like this, like those that are in human resources manager roles, or they work in information technology manager roles, that, that those audiences um, will be able to benefit from some of the things that we're currently developing because of the research that we've done. And, and what we're hoping is that we can share evidence um, from this study that really helps them understand aspects of the practices that they already use and employ um, and, and find ways because of the evidence to fine tune that and to, you know, increase opportunities and more inclusion for people who are blind and visually impaired. So that's, that's the thinking. All right. Let's open up to the key findings of the study. Stephanie, how did the participants often face challenges while they were just in the process of being hired for the next job? I'm actually going to pitch this to Ariel, I think. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So we found that 
a significant percentage of participants had a variety of challenges that they reported with the entire process of getting hired. And hiring and onboarding has become much more dependent on technology now than it was in the past. And so we had participants tell us that they had trouble even just filling out an application online or submitting attachments in an online application because the submit button wasn't visible to assistive technology that they were using. Um, Some of our participants had to take some sort of automated test, like to prove that they had a certain level of typing proficiency, for example, and they reported that the test was set up in an inaccessible way. So they were not able to access it with the same level of efficiency as their sighted peers. And they couldn't get the test done. They couldn't get it done or they had to retake it because they timed out, for example, like if it was a time test and it took so long for the screen reader to read it that they timed out or that maybe they were using large print and they couldn't see the entire assessment. Um, and so they, they experienced disadvantages trying to get that done. That's really a big bummer. Now, I also understand that the participants reported various accessibility challenges when using mainstream technologies at work. Ariel, what technologies are we talking about here? So there were a variety of technologies, and most of the participants report that in a typical week, they use several different types of technology, email, web browsers, word processors, spreadsheets. Um, Some of them use presentation software. Many of them use some sort of, especially during the pandemic, use some sort of video conferencing software like Zoom or Teams. Some of them reported that at their job, they use some sort of instant messaging software. And so many of the challenges that they described had to do with video conferencing, instant messaging, or websites or PDF files that were not accessible. And now with Teams, you're referring to Microsoft Teams, correct? Correct. All right. Uh, so, so some of those technologies, as you mentioned, include the video conferencing apps, the instant messaging apps that even come with them. A lot of participants requested even accommodations from their from their employers. What were the results of those requests? And give some examples of accommod- accommodations. So a variety of accommodations were requested, some of the most common being screen reading software, braille displays, magnifiers the ability to use sighted assistance either in person or virtually through a remote interpreter, access to screen enlargement software, things like that. And the results, there was a lot of variation. So there were some participants who said that they had no trouble getting the accommodations that they needed, or even that they were in a position where they could oversee the accommodations process at their job site. Um, Many of the participants said that they were able to get accommodations, but some of them reported having to wait for long periods of time for accommodation requests to be granted. A few participants reported experiences where their supervisor thought they were asking for special treatment or preferential treatment because they were requesting an accommodation. Or even in a couple of cases where participants said they were terminated or reassigned because they requested an accommodation. I heard that one in five participants reported even considering not requesting accommodations from employers due to fears of backlash. Is that true? That's what we found in the survey. Wow. Um, 21% said that they considered not requesting an accommodation because they were worried about backlash. 
have there been already some improvements in getting accommodations from employers and who've responded and said, okay, we realize that the visually impaired have special needs. We'll give them, we'll give them some accommodations. Have there been already any improvements in this area based on this study? Well, I, I think it would be really wonderful to do some follow-up work um, and to see where we can take things. Um, you know, it, I think to get to that answer, we would definitely need to, to look at different parts of, of this whole landscape, meaning um, look at some of the other areas that are not captured in this survey. Um, like, for example, human resource managers are playing a huge role in a lot of, um, you know, in, in shaping truly um, the experiences that, that all employees have um, as they work at any particular place of employment. Um, and from that standpoint, they may be a very interesting audience or, or part of the puzzle to be able to follow up with and look at some of the same issues um, to help influence their practices. But I think that we wouldn't be able to really honestly answer what's changed in, unless we did a little bit more research work um, or we got that direct feedback loop, which would be wonderful to, to receive on both fronts. I, I know I know. also many people are starting to go back to work now as this pandemic is starting to ease more. Um, what do you think some of these employers are going to have to do to make sure that the blind and visually impaired are well represented in just the hiring process and enabled to use the technology right, even when applying for those jobs, even when taking those tests and getting the training? Um, what do you think is going to have to be done right now? I mean, I, I do think that um, education on, on all fronts is a really important piece of this. Um, human resource managers alongside employees themselves um, really should educate themselves on the roles that they are playing and what their kind of what their responsibilities are in whatever their role is. Um, you know, a human resource manager has a lot of responsibilities um, according to the law and according to the way that, you know, guidance is written um, for their role. And I think that um, becoming well-versed with um, information like the information in this particular study, that could really benefit them in understanding how to um, foster better inclusion, including for people who are blind and low vision in their workplace. Um, but I think that employees themselves, and I think this was the most ex surprising thing um, when I was looking at the research and the, the report began to come together based on the research study. Um, what I found so surprising was that there were many people who were, um, you know, wonderfully educated, employed, um, blind and low vision individuals who actually were experiencing all kinds of stress and grief. Um, in the process of navigating the employment situation that they were in, simply because they didn't understand what their what their role was, what they should expect from a, an employer or a human resource manager, what they should expect um, as as part of what they should take on and how they should potentially advocate for themselves in the basics of the accommodation process. And so much of that could actually be uh, supported by more education. Um, and that, you know, as part of job readiness, when we're embarking on job, um, a, a job search or securing employment, we should really understand the mechanics of the accommodation process. And you can turn to places, um, like, um, the technical assistance 
provider, the Job Accommodation Network, which is located at askjan.org, A-S-K-J-A-N.org. There's a whole bunch of resources people can use to educate themselves in what to expect in the process of arranging for your reasonable accommodations. And I really hope that people will turn to that space and educate themselves because, you know, just in looking at the responses from this study, I know that it could have really alleviated a lot of, um, a lot of trouble that people were experiencing. Well, I just booked, bookmarked that job accommodation network on my show computer here, and I'm going to put that as one of the sites up under the for more information link on speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com so people can check that out. And we're also going to put up the uh, link to the study, too. um, Now, let's get to telework. It was two years ago. We started a shelter in place. COVID was here uh, big time. And let's talk about telework a little bit. Ariel, why was telework one positive innovation for many of the study's participants? We asked a lot about telework opinions and experiences in the interviews, and we found that many, not all, but many of the participants liked teleworking and in some cases even wanted to keep teleworking after their employer had gone back on site. And there were several reasons, and many of them are are quite obvious when you think about them. For example, transportation is a huge challenge for many people who are blind or have low vision to get to and from work. And with telework, transportation is really no longer an issue. Some of the participants also talked about how it was easier to use their assistive technology like a screen reader without worrying about bothering other people in the office or if they felt self-conscious about their appearance or about the devices that they use. They didn't feel as self-conscious when they were teleworking and it gave them more control over how their technology was set up. Um, However, there were also some challenges related to teleworking, again, with these video conferencing platforms. Some of the participants had difficulty accessing those platforms, especially early on. There was a learning curve and content that is shared in meetings, in remote meetings, is rarely accessible because of the way that those programs work when they share screens. So, so there were some reports of having difficulty accessing presentations or giving presentations, whether the person was using screen enlargement or screen reading technology. And also, it can be harder to get technical support if something isn't working or if something is not accessible when you're on site. You can just maybe walk down the hall or go to the IT, the computer center or whatever. But when you're teleworking, you have to do all of that remotely. So the, those were some adjustments that people had to make. So they had to make some adjustments. Any further challenges in the telework area? I think those were the, the major ones. The major ones. Was just okay. learning to use video conferencing, having some content not always accessible. And sometimes it's more challenging to get technical support. Hmm. Yeah. And, and and like you said, some people are going to go back to the office. Some are going to stay. Some really like working from home and, um, you know, feel comfortable with. It. So well, was I, there anything? Go, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, I think, I think there's, I think we'll, we will probably find there are certain activities that are best done face to face and other activities that are best done remotely. And, and we'll start to find that balance. Good point. Um, was there something surprising that you learned from the study though, Stephanie? I mean, I, I touched on it a little bit earlier and it was, it was just that piece around, um, how the accommodation process worked and, you know, really what I found surprising was um, where people were with their understanding of, of how the process works. You know, some people were, were maybe even outraged in some circumstances about how something unfolded um, related to their accommodations process. And it was well within the right of the employer to do exactly what had, had, had happened. Or maybe it was the reverse where something really horrible had gone wrong and they either did or they didn't know that their their rights were either being infringed on or not being infringed on. So it was just this this space where that basic self-advocacy information um, would have really been fueled by understanding the mechanics of the roles and responsibilities of the employee and the employer in the accommodation process. Um, and and I, I think that we can all benefit from knowing that. And, um, and it isn't something, it isn't a space that's, necessarily complicated um, to learn. You could probably sit down and, and dive in and learn the basics of everything you would need to understand and know in, in maybe a couple afternoons um, just by spending some time with some of the free resources that are available through Ask Jan. Um, so I, I, I strongly encourage people um, to, to understand those pieces so then you can really self-advocate effectively. Um, and I, I hope that Everybody is is well aware of the role that they can play um, in making sure that their employment process is as smooth um, and inclusive as possible. And just as much as self-advocacy is important, I think also having an advocate who knows you, knows your needs and abilities, you know, is just also there just to advocate for you if something, if something goes wrong, if the boss to employee communication goes wrong. And it's... It's true. So you can not only read resources at Ask Jan, but you can also interface um, with, they have a whole host of different kinds of services there. So the professionals you can interface with for free on the phone or via chat, which is also accessible um, and also in Spanish, um, you can interface with them and dialogue with them and, and actually ask, you know, is this issue, you know, um, something that I should be doing, you know, differently, or should I be requesting something differently? Or my employer did X, Y, or Z. Um, what could I or should I do? Um, what could I or should I request? Um, what's my role in this? What's their role in this? You can actually do this by dialoguing, um, which is a wonderful and free service. So, um, so I think it's, it's all for ours to, to absorb and to participate in. Well, everybody, where can we find the study? So it can be found at www.afb.org slash WTS, as in Workplace Technology Study. All right, great. Well, Stephanie, Stephanie and Ariel, let's hope the study's findings help companies create more inclusive workplaces for the blind. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Before we go, listeners, I welcome your comments on this program. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. You can also check out my website. That's speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. 
Just look under the list of episodes and show news tab. And my show archive is at speaking-out-for-blind.pinecast.co. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening. And remember to speak out. Hello, this is Dan Spoon, President of the American Council of the Blind. I just want to give a big hip, hip, hooray out there to our tremendous membership that does such a great job. You are listening to ACB Media One, also known as Mainstream, the flagship of the ACB Media Network. The ACB Media Network is a service of the American Council of the Blind. Please visit us at acbradio.org.